This is the Isaac Kite Show. I am your host, Lord Isaac, your Earl of Excellence, your Duke of Decisiveness, your Marquis de Machismo, half my brain dead from the drivel that comes out of the media and the left these days, Hollywood and academia, Oy. talent on loan from the greatest mover unmoved on condition of excellence. And once again, excellence is what you will receive on this episode. Your home for the truth, at least as far as I understand it, uh, and uh, hopefully helpful truths to you. So today's episode, I'm going to continue in the Birth of Liberty series. Uh, I've talked about the origins of Western civilization. <clears throat> Where do we come from as Westerners? And I'm going to delve today into uh, a little more of what is Western civilization. And uh, then we're going to move to uh, the part of Western civilization most relevant to us. If we're ultimately going to be talking about the birth of American liberty and the American ideology of liberty, then we're going to have to tack away from other areas of Western civilization and set our focus on England and the British Isles, because this is where uh, we find our cultural origins, right? Uh, while there's a lot of fascinating ideological and, and civilizational development that happens elsewhere in Western Civ, for sure, as I'm going to allude to here shortly, uh, England and Britain are where we're really going to see um, America's origins take off. So I'm going to dive right in here and um, talk. You know, I, I hope these uh, discussions are helpful and useful to people, as always. Um, and uh, if you appreciate it, then the work is, is well worth the effort. So, uh, as I said last time, uh, Western civilization came together like a river. Three, three confluences came together and created the river that is Western civilization. And those were Rome with its organization, civics and militarism, uh, the Greek with their science and philosophy, and the Jews with morality and religion. Uh, when I say religion, you know, monotheism, <clears throat> you know, the, the divergent from the, divergence from the, the pagan polytheisms uh, of the past to a more universalist uh, religious tradition uh, that uh, manifested itself in Western civilization as Christianity, right? Uh, it became the religious backbone of Western civ. So, that is, um, uh, or at least a couple branches of Western Civ, as I'm going to talk about now. I did mention last time <clears throat> that at a certain point we get divergent narratives in the Western story, right? So in Western Europe, our narrative is that the Roman Empire fell circa the 5th century, end of the 5th century, and we went into a Dark Ages where nothing was written, no histories, and, and uh, Europe was a, a mess of invasions and um, uh, constant migration of different groups and what have you. And finally, we came out of the Dark Ages into the Middle Ages, emerging with, uh, you know, the Charlemagne, or Charlemagne, as uh, it's often pronounced in English. And, you know, that's, that's Western Civ, right? But then you look and it's like, well, the Eastern Roman Empire soldiered on till 1453 or was conquered by the Ottomans. Ah, speaking of which, correction time. Now, I maintain intellectual honesty here, so when I make a mistake, even a minor one, I will call it out. Um, I did say that the Hundred Years' War ended before the Ottoman Empire fell. Actually, they ended in the same year. The Ottoman Empire was conquered in May 
1453 by the Ottomans and uh, the Hundred Years War is um, historians, because again, a lot of this is us looking back on history from later on and setting dates and saying, you know, well, we consider this the end of this conflict and the beginning of this new era and what have you. So um, the Hundred Years War are regarded to have ended in October of 1453, same year. But the point is that if you're thinking in, in terms of history, as I do, uh, you know, comparing different events, we don't tend to think of these things uh, as longitudinally uh, as we could. We, we think of them uh, monolithically. Like say, I like to think of English history and like, oh, you go through and there's this king and this king and this happened and that happened. But when you think of history kind of across the board, you think, okay, so in 1453, the Hundred Years' War ends. This is a, you know, an end of a, a, an era for, uh, for England. Uh, the Angevin Empire has come to an end. Henry VI, the Mad King, is on the throne. And we're about to kick off the Wars of the Roses. And I say wars, plural, because it's really a series of conflicts between the Lancasters, the Yorks, and eventually the Tudors that leads to Henry VII coming to power. And then even then, there are conflicts related to the Wars of the Roses that continue thereafter. But basically, England is going to turn in on itself. Uh, the English are going to deal with their own internal problems after this, having been beaten out of France, uh, having conquered France under Henry V first, and then being driven out of France by the Dauphin and uh, Jean d'Arc and so on and so forth. You know, now the uh, the war is over and England is England and France is France. And there'd still be some back and forth over places on the continent, Boulogne, Calais, a couple of other places uh, for the century that follows. But basically from here on, England is England and the British Empire uh, later on, Great Britain, but um, not on the continent, whereas the Angevin Empire controlled England and half of France before that, right? and uh, the monarchy was French-speaking and so on and so forth. Pretty soon England will be ruled by English-speaking, you know, England, right, uh, people. So this is where I'll turn on my focus in just a minute. But uh, before I can do that, I need to talk about uh, the Eastern branch just a little bit, right? So the Byzantine Empire continues to survive and the Orthodox Church continues to operate um, out in Byzantium, in Constantinople, in modern-day Turkey, right? Uh, the Roman Empire goes on. They reconquer Rome and the Italian, much of the Italian peninsula from Gothic tribes, from Germanic tribes, and uh, they're able to reclaim North Africa, significant parts of North Africa. And so for just a moment under the, the reign of Justinian, we see this, this moment where the Roman Empire seems to be coming back together. And, and you sit there, and, and in the greatest historical counterfactuals, you wonder, what would have happened if Justinian had been able to recreate Rome, right? <laughs> uh, and, and we pause for this question. We think, wow, what could have happened? And then arrives uh, the great villain of uh, the West, of Western civilization, henceforth until, you know, the mid-14th century, Yersenia Pestis, the plague, the Black Death arrives and kills somewhere on the order of a quarter to a third of the population uh, over the next 200 years of uh, repeated plague. Uh, Yersenia pestis is a bacteria that uh, developed in rats and it evolved very quickly uh, to become deadly to humans and uh, 
you know, humans who are infected with it would get a fever and then they'd have these bubos, ergo bubonic plague, uh, these, these black pustules form on their bodies and uh, the infection of their various uh, lymphatic system, uh, the n lymph nodes and what have you. In any case, it, it's a nasty disease. It killed a lot of people. And then uh, when it became pneumonic, when, it, when the lungs would fill up with kind of a, a sort of pus filled with the bacteria, uh, that, was, that was, you know, a death sentence. If you got that, you died. And uh, anyone you talked to or were in close contact with would die too because it was airborne. So the plague hits and that devastates the Byzantine Empire. It devastates Persia, but not to the same degree. Uh, and eventually they end up in a massive geopolitical war at the turn of the seventh century. That's the 600s for those of you who are keeping tracks, the early 600s. Massive war <clears throat> back and forth. Persia conquers uh, the Middle East, Syria and modern day Israel and uh, the, they go back and forth. Uh, eventually, it, it's down to the Persians are besieging Byzantium while uh, the uh, Byzantine emperor, Heraclius, Heraclius is, uh, is besieging Tessaphon and threatening Tessaphon, the capital of Persia. And just imagine in any war, I mean, you know, think about World War II, you know, where, you know, where the Allies are besieging Berlin and, Berlin and the Germans are besieging London. I mean... What a thing. You would never even think it possible, but that was the war, this massive war between these two powers. Finally, they came to terms and this uneasy peace settles in. And if you're familiar with your history, you already, you're, you're a step ahead of me. You know what comes next because in 630, uh, there's a prophet in the Arab world. We, we know now as Muhammad and Muhammad unites the Arab tribes and they go out to raid and um, plunder the civilized world, Rome and Persia, and uh, they just, they end up just devastating the place. They end up taking over. It, it's really surprising how weak the Roman and Persian civilizations have become. Persia completely falls to the Muslims. Uh, the Romans, uh, the Byzant Byzantines are able to hold out. They have a good fortified city. Uh, they're able to hold out after repeated Zundri attacks, and they hold out until the Ottomans are able to conquer the city finally seven centuries later. But, uh, you know, again, we, we, in the Western mind, the Western European iteration of Western Civ, we think to ourselves, oh, the Roman Empire fell, there was the Dark Ages, and then we have the Middle Ages that follow. And meanwhile, you know, the Roman Empire lasted until 1453. You know, in the East, the Roman Empire fell at the end of the Hundred Years' War in our uh, Western European mindset. Right. And um, just before the successful Reconquista of Spain, right, from Muslim forces there. So, you know, anyway, uh, there's a, a great book that talks about the history of the rise of Islam. And uh, I want to it comes highly recommended. Great intellectual honesty. Uh, it is written by Tom Holland. It's called In the Shadow of the Sword. In the Shadow of the Sword is an awesome book. I, I can't say too many good things about it. It's incredible. Uh, Tom Holland goes back and he looks at the real history. There's a lot of propaganda and a lot of misinformation surrounding the rise of Islam. It's very political. And so he goes back and looks at the original sources. He finds pretty solid evidence that uh, there was a, an Arab prophet uh, it, at the time that Muhammad was to have lived. And he uh, is able to ascribe at least most of the Quran to being relatively original to that time. Uh, which is pretty solid, you know, historical basis. And he provides all the evidence for that. You can read his arguments. 
But uh, he also uh, talks about how, you know, centuries later, what is now considered modern Islam was compiled, and it's something that looks very different from what the Quran says, and very different from the original, you know, Arab history of the time. And uh, it looks a lot like Zoroastrianism, and uh, with some Christian and Jewish influences. And it's, you know, he, he points out that, uh, you know, it's not, it's not as original as it could be. In any case, Tom Holland, In the Shadow of the Sword, great book. I loved it in particular because it's very honest about Jewish history. Uh, we, don't, we don't talk about, Jews are just never allowed to talk about that area, era of history, the Near, near East uh, and late antiquity, uh, because you know a lot of things in Judaism were invented there at the same time. Uh, the Talmuds were written, uh, this idea of an oral tradition, commentaries on the Torah, turning the whole Jewish tradition into a yeshiva-oriented tradition. All of that stuff was invented out of whole cloth right then. Right. And so for Jews, this is a pivotal moment where Judaism was A and is completely converted into B, something very different from what Judaism was. And, you know, then uh, the conversion to Judaism B will actually have an influence on Christianity and also on Islam. So anyway, there's that. All right. Uh, so we have these two branches now of Western civilization, right? The West, Western Europe, the East, Eastern Europe. Now I'm going to talk about a third branch of Western civilization. And I am about to say something controversial, so get ready. Are you sitting down? Take a deep breath. Don't take a drink because you might spit it out. I'm going to say something controversial and, and people probably won't expect from me. Uh, as far as I am concerned, Islam at this point becomes a third branch of Western civilization. All right. Are you, are you sitting now? I hope nobody's fainted or passed out. If you're f suffering from a syncope, episode, you know, go, go seek medical attention, okay? Um, the, uh, as I described, the confluence of Western civilization is Roman organization and militarism combined with Greek science and philosophy and Jewish morality and religion. Well, the Arabs are also the inheritors of, like the Jews, of a moral and religious tradition from essentially the same source, right? So Yitzhak, Isaac was, you know, his brother was Ishmael, Ismail in Arabic, uh, who was the father of the 12 Arab tribes. You can read all of this in, in Breshit, uh, the book of Genesis in the Bible, right? Uh, and Yitzhak's son, Isaac's son, uh, Yaakov, Jacob, was the father of the tribes of Israel, right? So his, he was a cousin to the 12 Arab tribes. Therefore, you know, we are cousin peoples. We, we have a, a common origin. We both look to Abraham, to Abraham, or Ibrahim in Arabic, as the originator of our ethnic groups. And so um, the Arabs, at the very least, have an original access, let's say, to that pillar, that first pillar of Western civilization. Well, the Arabs also were contracted by the Romans and the Byzantines to work for them, to fight the Persians. So they lived near Roman communities, and they traded with Romans, and they were interacting with Romans, and they had a vast familiarity. If you read uh, the Quran, as, as I have, and Tom Holland talks about it in, in Shadow of the Sword, uh, there are references that make it very clear that the, the originator, the speaker or re recorder or the uh, author, if you want to look at it that way, uh, of the Quran, uh, the Quran is a recitation. So according to the Quran, it is the recitation of revelation from heaven. Uh, so I'm, I'm not trying to be offensive to Islam by saying, you know, it's, it's written by someone or the author, or Muhammad is the author or anything like that. I'm just trying to say 
that uh, when you look at the original text and context, it is very clear that the author uh, or authors are familiar with Rome, geopolitics at the time and Rome. So the Arabs had a very good sense of Roman militarization, uh, uh, militarism, right? Because they were part of the Roman military. They served as auxiliaries. They were allies of the Romans. And as a result, they were familiar with Roman civics and organization and a lot of Roman philosophy and that kind of thing uh, as well. When the Arabs conquered this vast empire, so as I said, they, they united the Arabian Peninsula, all the Arab tribes kind of came together, they formed this monolithic group, and then they went out to raid and plunder, and they ended up controlling the whole Middle East and Persia. And next thing you know, you, you just take a blink in the history book, if you will, and the Arabs control everything from Spain and Morocco all the way to Pakistan. I mean, it's massive swath of territory all the way across North Africa, all the way to modern Pakistan and India, right? Huge territory, and you're like, my God, where did that come from? And they tried to figure out how to govern this. The Arabs, uh, among all the civilizations in the area at the time, had some a really great quality. They were smart enough to know that they were stupid. Uh, these Arab tribesmen did not know how to govern this empire. And sometimes thinking yourself too smart is not a good thing. So they knew that there, was thing, there were things they didn't know. They were ignorant of how to govern this empire. Well, they went and had the Greek classics, Greek philosophy and science, and Roman classics and that kind of thing translated into Arabic so that they could study it. So at this point where this you know, Islamic empire exists, we have a group of people who have an original moral and religious tradition very similar to that of the Jews. They're just as familiar with Roman organization, civics, and militarism as any Westerner is, as anyone living in France at the time, certainly. And they are familiar, have more than a passing familiarity with Greek science and philosophy. So. As far as I am concerned, Islam is a now third branch of Western civilization, right? A more Persian <coughs> branch, granted, stronger Persian influences there, but a third branch nonetheless. And so when Islam invades Spain and, and Charles Martel is, is keeping them out of France as they're raiding into France, again, they, they probably weren't looking to conquer France. They probably weren't gonna move into France, uh, but you know, it's a, it's a great story to say, you know, Charles the Hammer he goes in and he defeats the Muslims and he drives them out and uh, <coughs> he preserves Western Europe from for Christendom. You know, uh, it's a great story. So I'm not going to I'm not going to take that away from the French, but most likely uh, it was a much less significant victory from the Muslim side, a defeat from the Muslim side as, a, as it was a great victory for the French and Europeans on their side. In any case, uh, we, we have this interaction with Islam there. And there's going to be the Crusades, where uh, Europeans are going to go and reconquer the Holy Land and then be driven out of the Holy Land, right? And uh, through that and through the Kingdom of Cordoba in Spain, there's a, an exchange. As much as people talk about the hostility, there's an exchange here. Now, Latin-speaking scholars are rediscovering the Greek classics through these Arabic texts, along with medicine, science, and technology, the Persian and uh, Arab scientists have brought forward all of this knowledge. They have done so with an open mind. Now, free from the sort of boxes that everything had been put into in classical society, in, in Rome and what have you, they, they've developed new ideas and new thoughts and all this. And that is now going back to Italy and Spain, being translated back into Latin. And 
promulgated across Europe. So now Europeans have access to this medicine, science, and technology from the Middle East. And uh, on top of the Greek classics, now we have more Persian philosophy. Now we have uh, more advanced knowledge, right? Better medicine. So this is important because now that it's in Latin, it can go to places like England, where English scholars, who are also taught Latin, can read them and develop them as well. And so this is kind of the intellectual grounding. So my big controversial statement, Islam is part of Western civilization. Uh, I want to say that, you know, I think the argument could be made that the that Islamic society is the closest thing you could have to Western civilization outside of the West. If you wanted to minimize the impact, minimize the impact of Islam, uh, if you're really looking to be minimalist, uh, I think I could destroy that argument myself. So, I mean, that the least you can say, though, is that it is the most Western, non-Western society, I think. But I think it's pretty solid from the arguments that I just made, uh, especially defining Western civilization and its origins as I do, that Islam is another branch of Western civ. And so all these people are talking about, you know, Western civ versus Islam and, and all this kind of thing are, are kind of full of it. Uh, this is an intra-Western conflict. The, the conflicts between the Ottoman Empire and Europe... Uh, the conflicts uh, between the colonial powers and the Middle East, and modern conflict between the United States and allies at all, and militant Islam. These are intra-Western combat, uh, conflicts, as much as the wars in Europe have up through the First and Second World Wars, in my opinion. Uh, others could disagree, but uh, as far as I'm concerned, that is Western Civ that we're talking about there. Uh, and, uh, you know... It may be different from Christianity, but it's there. So, I'm back to the break, the Reconquista, and um, you know we're, we're going to return to Western Europe as a branch of uh, Western Civ. Talk about the, the Reconquista, uh, early England, and then uh, eventually we need to talk about the Reformation because you know, I'm building this ideological foundation here for where liberty comes from, and all of these things are relevant. So, hang on. Years ago, I saw the writing on the wall and moved out of California. Let me tell you, with the high cost of living, high taxes, high regulations, high crime, it was no place to run a business and certainly no place to raise children. Now, with all the mandates and lockdowns, it's become unbearable. So if you're looking to make your way to a red state like I did and enjoy the, the breath of freedom that you get in the red state life, then I want you to call my friend Paul Chabot at Conservative Move, conservativemove.com. Paul and his uh, associates at Conservative Move help people get relocated from blue states to red states, whichever red state you're interested in moving to, conservativemove.com. Or you can call 800-277-5487, 800-277-5487. Let Paul and the folks at Conservative Move get you set up in the breath of free air in red state America. Right, we're back. Now I can go on with my rambling and uh, try to <clears throat> include a few more ideas that may be of use, may not be of use, but that's, we'll see, that's up to you. I mean, uh, you can listen and say I'm full of it. You can listen and say I, you agree completely. You can listen and say ah, I like a little of this and a little of that. It's up to you, right? Okay, so, uh, I talked about how uh, Islam conquered North Africa and made its way into Spain. So the Kingdom of Cordoba, this, this Muslim kingdom in Spain, uh, is um, 
as the Crusades go on, you know, Europeans take back the Holy Land and then eventually are kicked out of it. <clears throat> Spain is in, in Western Europe is this eyesore of, uh, you know, for, for Western European Christians. After all, the, now we've, we've had the Crusades come and go, but much of Spain is still ruled by Muslims, right? Uh, or the Moors, as they say uh, at the time. So uh, forces gather together. And they work to drive out the Muslims from Spain and finally achieve success uh, at the point we are all familiar with when uh, we have the, um, the marriage of Ferdinand and Isabella and uh, 1492, because that's also when they allow the, uh, they send out a, an Italian, a Genoese uh, explorer named Christopher Columbus to go search for a way to India. You know, he thinks he's found India, he thinks he's found Asia, but uh, in fact he is unaware that there are two huge land masses between Europe and Asia, and uh, he kind of got stopped there, kind of got stuck there, you know. Uh, there's these places called the Americas, uh, as what happened. Anyway, uh, and a year later in 1450, uh, 1493, excuse me, the Spanish kick out the Jews. They force the Jews out of Spain and later the Jews are forced out of Portugal. Portugal is much more tolerant, uh, far less extreme. They did not want to expel their Jews, but they were forced to by Spain, basically at spear point. Uh, and, uh, in, you know, the English had already expelled the Jews under Edward I uh, a few years earlier. Uh, I'll come back to that in a minute. But... Uh, you know, this is, this is something that happened in Europe a few times that was a really sad story and uh, it had long-term impact. Uh, Spain never really recovered economically. They were able to bring in a lot of silver and gold and uh, stuff from the New World <clears throat> and uh, pay for their armies. Uh, but uh, as soon as that silver and that gold stopped having value, um, as soon as it, uh, it stopped being tradable, into uh, China and other places. As soon as that, that value decreased through inflation, Spain was finished as a major world empire. Uh, so, <clears throat> any case, the Reconquista is part of an era, and unfortunately the Inquisition that follows it, part of an era of the stealing of, of Christianity. And I say stealing, the, the hardening. Uh, Christians were getting tough. They were building this idea of a, a Christian community. In Western Europe, this is a Western European Catholic Christianity that's uh, getting tough here. And uh, they're uh, building an idea of Western Europe as Catholic Christian civilization uh, without Islam, without Jews, right? And what's that going to look like? And as I've mentioned the, the Hundred Years' War a few times, because out of the Hundred Years' War comes uh, a new concept, and this is just a few decades before the Reconquista is completed. But when you look at France after the Hundred Years' War, <clears throat> something unique has happened here. For once, we have a polity that represents a large geographic area of people who basically share a common tongue, uh, who share a common economy and a common culture, right? Uh, and they see themselves as having common ethnic origins. They are French, and they are ruled by a French king within a geography that they define as a landmass called France. So what we see at the end of the Hundred Years' War is 
France uh, deliberately and England accidentally become the first nation states, right? Because now England, this territory from, you know, Umbria and, and, and the, the border with Scotland up in the north, all the way down, including Cornwall, East Anglia, Wessex, Sussex, Kent, all of, all of this, you know, England, as, as we think of England today, is now uh, fighting in the Wars of the Roses over their own polity, right? But there are people who likewise share a common geography, culture, language for the most part. I mean, there are uh, Cornish people and a few other uh, different disparate groups there. And obviously there are the Welsh just over the ditch in, uh, in Wales. But um, England is essentially, again, by accident, because they had been the Angevin Empire, they are by accident now a nation state, right? And they're combating one another, fighting one another over what is the nature of that nation state. And Spain becomes this third nation state, where uh, upon the, the union of uh, Aragon and Castilla, that now they are one uh, nation, Spanish-speaking, Christian, Catholic nation, right? Uh, with a common geography and all that good stuff. So we're, we're starting to see the rise of what we would now consider modern nation states. Now they'll go through various permutations and uh, they'll develop more. There's a lot about France that will remain medieval all the way up to 1789 in terms of law, politics, internal structure and such, and economics. Uh, England is going to be modernized quite a bit, um, but you know, we've, we built these nation states. We now have this sense of, of Christian Western Europe, okay? Uh, and beyond France, we have the Holy Roman Empire, uh, founded initially by Charlemagne, who ruled France as well. France eventually kind of falls out of it, uh, and it's mostly Germany and the northern Italian states. And uh, we historians uh, love to joke about the Holy Roman Empire because it was not holy, not Roman, and not an empire. It was many things, but it was none of, none of the above, right? Um, but it was, it was an interesting concept. Uh, but Charlemagne wanted to uh, hail back to Rome, right, and the Roman Empire, and he, he felt very strongly that, you know, the Pope and the Church were, you know, one with him, and he was promoting Christianity and spreading it through Germany uh, at the time. So, again, we have this Holy Roman Empire over there. That isn't a nation-state, and we won't see a nation-state in Central Europe, uh, you know, until 1871. <laughs> so, uh, that's... Uh, you know, that's a, a fair point there, okay? But Western Europe, these three nation-states have now formed, and I think arguably Portugal becomes something of a nation-state in, in itself there. So it's kind of a fourth, right? These nation-states have formed and now represent the future of Western European civilization. Let's go back in time just a little bit now, in England, uh, to the time of Alfred. We have the... Uh, Nordic peoples, the Scandinavians, the Vikings, if you will, who have come to the British Isles. And at the time they came to the British Isles, there were no fortifications in Britain that were more sophisticated than a wooden stockade. And these were people who could uh, ride in on their boats in the fog, literally come in with the fog, <laughs> and uh, raid a city and be gone before anyone could marshal forces or do anything, before the next town even knew that uh, Vikings were raiding their neighbors uh, to raise an army and, and muster out and try to challenge the Vikings, they'd come down to, the, to the, their neighbor city and the neighbor, the neighbor village, I should say. Cities are, is a term that wouldn't really apply to the English people at this time. 
in any case, they go to the next village and, it, and the Vikings are already gone. Whatever they wanted, they've taken. Uh, whatever they've done, they're going to they're gonna do, they've done. Uh, so they come uh, later on and start to settle. <clears throat> and they end up controlling most of northern England and East Anglia uh, and the, the eastern uh, coast of England. One kingdom holds out against them, Wessex, uh, and to a lesser extent Mercia, which is north of Wessex along the Welsh border. And uh, Wessex is where King Alfred rules. Now, what's important about Alfred? Uh, first of all, Alfred is a Catholic Christian king, and he's pushing Christianity very hard in England at the time. And Christianity is very important to Western civilization, to the three branches of Western civilization that are Christian. <laughs> I just talked about there's that other branch out there that's Islamic, but, you know, that's, uh, that's a whole different matter at this point. In any case, um, <clears throat> uh, he's pushing Christianity. But the most thing, uh, important thing Alfred did, in my opinion, other than hold out an English-Saxon kingdom, is uh, the promulgation of the Alfred Law Code. <clears throat> Alfred puts together a legal code. And it's a very interesting thing here because we're starting to see something a little different in England than we get from the continent. Most peoples would develop in the time after this a very Christian idea that the king rules by divine right. And whatever the king says is law, right? Period, end of story. Divine right to rule. God made the king of France king, and therefore you have to do whatever the Valois family says, right? They say, speak. They say, how high? Jump. They say, jump. You say, how high? Okay? It's, it's very simple like that. And so the legal system in those countries, and in Spain as well, is very centered on the crown and whatever the crown wants. But in England... Alfred has to do something unique here. Granted, this is a thousand years ago we're talking about. Uh, Alfred promulgates his law code, and he has to argue that these are ancient English laws, ancient, ancient Saxon and, and pre-Saxon English laws, Roman laws, things of that nature, and uh, ancient church laws. In other words, uh, laws promulgated directly from the Bible, <clears throat> right? Why? Why is this? Also, King Alfred uh, rules with a ruling council called a Witten. Uh, later, this is something similar we might call to the House of Lords. Uh, but, you know, he rules with a ruling council. He is very closely tied to the nobility of his land. Um, there's something different going on here in England, right? Something a little bit unlike the divine right to rule monarchies <clears throat> that we find south of the Channel. English people are a little better organized. They have a stronger sense of law. And they have a stronger sense of their own independence, especially the nobility uh, and the landed gentry. Now, we're going to do our thing, and if you're going to impose upon us laws you know, or uh, force upon us edicts or push, you know, insert yourself into how we live our lives, you have to be able to prove that it's ancient stuff, that, that nothing, you're not changing anything, you're just, you're just writing down ancient laws, or that they're directly biblical and thus related directly to our faith, things of that nature. We're not just going to accept your word as law. Hmm, that's something a little different. Uh, one might almost say that the English have this sense of individual liberty to a certain extent. I'd be exaggerating, even by using that term, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but we, we can see here just the first inkling of this idea that kings are, uh, that the king and the monarchy kind of work for us. Right? And even in the philosophies we get from, from that era, uh, Fontescue, for example, that, 
the idea that you know the king should be the most prosperous citizen among his uh, kingdom and uh, you know protecting the kingdom all this kind of thing back to this idea that the king should do something for us the monarchy exists for our protection to a certain extent a little bit different from the divine right to rule that you see in France and nobody in France will challenge divine right to rule very rarely do you see any major challenges that are not uh, sectarian you know religious challenges there so uh, meanwhile in England I mean we're gonna have lots of conflicts uh, when kings are too pushy or are felt to be tyrannical or dictatorial they can be thrown off the throne tossed off the throne uh, in favor of a more tolerant monarch so we'll, we'll see how that goes in any case, uh, Alfred and his successors are able slowly to reunite England, uh, taking it from the, uh, the Nordic, the Danes, right, the Danish settlers that have come in. And uh, they are able to unite England as, an, as sort of a Saxon kingdom with a lot of Nordic uh, ideas as well. For example, when we look up and we see the sky, sky is a Nordic word, right? Just as we have a lot of Germanic words from the, the Saxons being brought in. Okay, if you have a beef with someone, beef is another of these Nordic words. So uh, they have an impact on our culture there. Also on our legal system. Uh, Nordic peoples would solve problems by having a group of 12 men judge, you know, citizens of the community, judge those uh, who are... Uh, accused of something and often this was trial by ordeal or some kind of fight but 12 men would sit over this in judgment a jury right a jury of your peers of people at your station in life right interesting new concepts that arrive and it, it is a, a funny thing let me take just a side step here just a note uh, we, we go through all this stuff you know the 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 angle the romans moved into the region and the angles and the saxons and all of these different migrations through the area and the normans are coming and we need all this stuff that all these different groups of people who are purported to have moved into the area. Yet genetic studies of English villages show that most English people are pretty homogenous and that they represent people who have been in England for four or five thousand years. So these migrations are largely of the elite. Now we're talking about the ruling class, the 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 Nordic you know, the Nordic men will come over and they'll rule you know, I have an elite group, but for the most part, the English peasants that they're ruling are still English and they stay English, right? There's not some mass migration of peoples, you know, kind of interesting. Uh, one linguistic point they, they made, uh, the word Kent uh, from uh, Old English Kanti uh, is unique to the area, completely unique. In fact, we don't even know what language it comes from. It's so unique. It is, doesn't relate to any language we know of that was in the region. So the name for the region of England called Kent Conti originally is ancient and uh, speaks to a culture, you know, a remnant of a culture and, and a, an identity that is unique and ancient and we don't know a lot about. Kind of curious, right? Uh, so in, in any case, eventually Canute comes to rule and they get rid of Canute and Englishmen are back on the throne of, uh, Canute was a Dane, uh, are back on the throne and uh, we get to this, this moment in English history, again, the, the, the counterfactuals, you know, the what-ifs of history, right? Uh, we have Harold Godwinson, who uh, succeeds Edward the Confessor, and he fights this battle at Stamford Bridge, where he defeats the last Nordic invasion of England. 
So England at this point is still a Saxon kingdom, and there's one last ditch effort from the Norwegians to establish a Nordic kingdom in England. And at Stamford Bridge, he defeats them and thus ends the poss any possibility of Nordic Norwegian invasion of England. That's it. They're done. Okay. Never again to, to threaten or, or trouble us. And then he heads south to a place called Hastings, where he meets William the Conqueror, the Duke of Norman, who is a distant relative of Edward the Confessor and has a claim to the throne. And uh, his claim will always be that the throne, uh, you know, the, that Edward had sworn the throne to him and claimed him as a successor. But, you know, history is written by the victors. It's really difficult to know whether that story is true. Awfully convenient to, to establish legitimacy, but, you know, I'm not going to go there. At the Battle of Hastings, Harold dies and William the Conqueror takes over England. And so now the Normans are in charge. And while the Normans are uh, largely French, and this is the connection that leads to the end of an empire, right? Now you have England and northern France and parts of western France kind of tied together uh, politically. Uh, at this point, um, the English polity becomes much more stable. Uh, from this point forward, England itself is not going to be invaded by outside powers, and the English monarchy is largely going to be something that is held by English or French men of choice, you know, within the, the, the system. And I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, eventually we get the gambler Stephen, and then Henry II comes to the throne. Uh, Henry, <laughs> Henri, you know, he's, he's French, uh, marries Eleanor of Aquitaine, and he brings this massive uh, realm, you know, Western France, if you look at the internet, Western France, all of England, he has this, this big realm. England is a very important part of his realm because while the French are very wealthy, England is this, um, oh, I don't want to put it, like it's a cash cow. It's a definite milch cow for the monarchy. The English are very well organized. They have bailiffs and uh, shires and they have an organized system for the collection of taxes, for the implementation of laws and this kind of thing. And Henry adds to that by sending out judges who are going to enact the law in his name. Is, that's, I'm going to come to that in a second. But England is different from France in that it's got this organization, the cash cow, and you don't get a lot of internal conflict there. And as long as the English are able to work and live and they're very happy and pleased and they have a lot of their own liberties and they're productive, this is a, a place you want to rule. And so England will become a place to be fought over because it is valuable this way. Even though at this point, just as Henry's coming to power, uh, you would look at, you know, Aquitaine and would say, wow, this is a much wealthier place and, and a much better place to live and, and all that kind of thing. Um, we also have a different climate. England was quite a bit warmer at the time. They used to grow grapes in England. Uh, England used to be a great uh, uh, vintner empire. And uh, the, the climate would change and cool off quite a bit in the 14th century, what we call the mini ice age. And that would lead England to the climate that we're now familiar with that's much cooler. And it's only just begun to warm up a little bit. Uh, in any case, Henry, uh, this is very important, he sends out his judges. And these judges are implementing the law on his behalf. And this ends up somewhat accidentally creating the system of common law. As these judges go out to implement Henry's law, to rule on behalf of the king out in the, in the shires and out in the land of, of England, they start to set precedents. And they start to create... Uh, an idea that, you know, the judges have a certain leeway in making decisions, 
that the local customs play into it a little bit, but that the law, instead of being a fixed codex, like those that follow the Justinian Code do, uh, that can be applied by any judge according to what is written in the statute, now we have a different system where the judges can apply the law a little more liberally. And these concepts like, you know, a jury could, could say someone is technically guilty, but they could also acquit someone who they believe to be guilty because they don't believe the law is just or that the judicial system is just, right? So you could do that. I mean, you know, this, this changes things a little bit. We're getting a little bit different legal system here, much more, uh, I want to say populist. I don't want to, I don't use that term too loosely here, but uh, based more on the popular law, right? And what the judges are able to implement and, and this kind of thing. So we've got this sort of conversation, legal conversation going on between the king and his subjects. A little more back and forth. Not something you're going to see in France. Not something you're going to see in Spain. Okay, Philip II makes law. He expects the law to be implemented. Okay, now Philip II is not a contemporary of Henry II. Uh, much later on, I'm just making the point. He was a powerful king of Spain, uh, you know, a couple centuries later. So we have this common law. The Plantagenets uh, go from there. Uh, we get Edward I, kind of uh, the Julius Caesar of England, if you will. He conquers Wales. It's the most difficult conquest the English will ever make. They have to build 11 castles around Wales just to keep the Welsh down. <laughs> uh, can you tell I'm partly Welsh? I'm very proud of the Welsh, although they don't show up in the history books very often. Uh, and maybe they should in, a little more often. Uh, with the Welsh, you know, and, and Joellen the Great, and, and the, they give the English a bloody nose here and there, and they, they keep the English busy fighting in Wales uh, quite a bit. Anyway, uh, and then by the time of Edward III, the, the famous, you know, the movie Braveheart, and the story of uh, Robert the Bruce, and all of the, the conflicts between Scotland and England, this takes place then in uh, Edward III's reign as we're trying to establish uh, English hegemony on... The, the British Isles over Ireland and Scotland. Something that will occupy the English well on nigh into the 17th century uh, and the English Civil War in particular. When I get back from the break, uh, I'm going to talk about Renaissance England and the development of, of um, checks and balances and I want to say the modern Anglo-American liberal tradition uh, before breaking off this episode and uh, continuing on. So I live in a small town, and there are times when I want to cruise across town, and it's, it's a little too far to walk, but I'm not really up for getting in the car and driving all the way over. Well, it's times like that I like to get on my Unagi scooter and just scoot around. Also fun when the kids are out riding their bikes, and I don't have to go through all the effort of pedaling a bike. I can just cruise around on my scooter. The Unagi scooter is the iPhone of scooters. High-tech, sleek finish, sharp-looking. This is the scooter to cruise around in, whether you're in a small town like me or the big city. It has uh, motors on both wheels, plenty of horsepower. You get good speed out of it. Some people have gotten upwards of 16 miles an hour on these things. Uh, great for cruising around town. Uh, decent range, too. And you, when you're done with it, plug it in, recharge, and it's ready to go. Also, you can flip the handle down, and the whole thing becomes a convenient, carryable uh, object. You just take it like a suitcase into work with you or uh, wherever you're going. So, Unagi scooters. All right, so uh, I alluded to the Wars of the Roses earlier. Uh, one of my favorite parts of uh, English history, and I just I have to glaze over all of this history because what I'm looking for are the important moments where we see evidence of... Uh, 
the sort of ideology of liberty that I'm talking about and, and its origins, after all, or what I'm after in these podcast episodes. So we have uh, the Wars of the Roses. Henry Tudor comes to the throne, Henry VII, and his son, Henry VIII, is a, a pivotal point in the history of Western Europe. Martin Luther, over in Germany, has nailed his 90-odd theses in, you know, to the, the door of the church, and Protestantism has started to arise in Northern Europe. And while this is going on, Henry wants a divorce from his wife, Catherine of Aragon. Uh, they're, they're barren, they have no children, and he wants to get rid of her and get another, uh, get another wife. Uh, Anne Boleyn, uh, a Protestant, is the, the sort of wife-in-waiting, right? And he's trying to get rid of uh, this wife. Ultimately, he decides to create a new church, to separate the Church of England from the Catholic Church and make himself, as king, the head of the church, uh, interposing himself for the Pope. And this is, you know, the beginning of the Reformation, the beginning of the end of Catholic England, and the birth of Protestantism in England. Protestantism becomes another branch of Western civilization, because in Northern Europe, among the Dutch, uh, we, you know, Sweden, Norway, you know, we get Protestant movements in, in the Scandinavian countries as well. Protestantism will become this new branch of Western European Western civilization, right? So we get, we get a new branch here. The Protestants develop the work ethic, right? The Protestant work ethic we hear a lot about. It's uh, hard work. You know, you produce things. It's, it's, it's your, your, you demonstrate your love for God but through your works and producing things and being righteous and living a good life. Things of this nature. Uh, wonderful ideas and very helpful to Western Civ. But these ideas begin to spread to England. But there's a lot of back and forth between Catholics and Protestants. Uh, Henry's daughter, Mary, would come to the throne uh, shortly after his son only briefly <laughs> stayed on the throne. Uh, and uh, she would become known as Bloody Mary. She's literally having Protestants burned at the stake. And then uh, she dies and her sister Mary, uh, excuse me, her sister Elizabeth succeeds Mary. So after Bloody Mary, uh, or yes, that's the same Bloody Mary who's behind the drink, <laughs> the name of the drink, uh, comes Elizabeth. Elizabethan England is this really credible and remarkable moment in history, especially for Americans. <laughs> this is where we really start to get some distinct American ideas here. I've talked up to this point about how uh, Alfred had to promulgate his laws and his law code on the idea that these were ancient laws that had always been in place or, or biblically based laws, church, church rules, and so on and so forth. And described Henry II's common law system, you know, judges going out and implementing the king's law with the people, such that it keeps the people happy and implements justice and, and everyone feels good about the system of justice. Well, now Elizabeth comes to the throne and she's seeking balance. And this is something that changes English society quite a bit. Her religious policy is via media, the middle road, right? So she says that the Church of England will be uh, hopefully Catholic enough for the Catholics and Protestant enough for the Protestants, but not either, right? It, it is not necessarily Catholic, not necessarily Protestant, right, is, is her path. We're going to go between the two, right? And she starts to set things in balance. Uh, she calls for Parliament only four times during her reign. Parliament has 
now kind of formalized uh, when John was king back in the early Plantagenet days, one of the sons of Henry II. Uh, we have that famous incident at Runnymede in 1215 where he has to sign the, the Magna Carta, which creates a house of lords that uh, oversees the king's, uh, you know, the raising of taxes and levies and um, this kind of thing for war and what have you. And, and there's a check on the king's power. Uh, ultimately, a House of Commons is formed as well, uh, which represents the non-noble people in the society. And uh, you'll have instances, uh, for example, in the reign of Henry VI, where the House of Commons will begin to debate who should be king and who should rule. And you get these uh, lords are offended, and then, you know, paw, 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 these commoners, these, how dare they uh, rise up and tell us, discuss with us who should be king, and in England, yeah, so you get, a, you get a little bit of that. Well, we're going to see that explode here in a minute. Uh, but Elizabeth seeks balance. So one of Elizabeth's uh, judges is a man by the name of Edward Cook, and his last name is spelled C-O-K-E, so it looks like Coke, like Coca-Cola, uh, but it is uh, pronounced Cook. And Edward Cook has this uh, unique perspective... <laughs> where basically any institution he's in, he believes has an independent authority, right? So he was a, a judge during Elizabeth's time and he would continue when Elizabeth died. Uh, Elizabeth had no heirs. She had not married anyone. She had no legitimate children. There's a lot of debate about whether um, the, it's possible that uh, maybe Francis Bacon or uh, the Earl of Essex uh, were possibly... Uh, her children, these historians debate endlessly, but the fact is uh, she had no legitimate children who were uh, able to succeed her. But uh, her cousin, uh, Mary, Mary Queen of Scots, for to be historical, uh, her son was James, James VI of Scotland, the King of Scotland. And upon Elizabeth's death, uh, James was the next in in the family, the closest family member to succeed her. And thus James comes down to rule England. Now James was raised a Protestant, even though his mother was Catholic and an agitator for the Catholic cause. Um, but James comes down to England as James I of England. And he is a little more French in his thinking and he has divine right to rule and what, what have you. Uh, and I have a couple of funny things to share. I'm gonna to try to share them quickly, but Edward Cook is in the, is in the court at this point, at the, the court of the King's bench, and he's arguing that the judiciary has an independent authority to check the king's power. And he's like, what the heck is this nonsense, right? Uh, courts are going to, judges, you know, these are my judges. They're supposed to implement my law. Who the heck are these people to tell me what my law is, right? Uh, and later he'd be uh, dismissed from the bench uh, and he'll end up running for parliament, become the speaker of the House of Commons. And there he will argument, argue that parliament has an independent authority to check the king's power. What a funny thing. Wherever Edward Cook goes, whatever institution, it has independent power. It would have been interesting to see what might have happened if Edward Cook had become king of England uh, because he would have had uh, a very different um, perspective on things, maybe, if he sat on the throne. But of course, we'll never know because he was uh, not, you know, he was a commoner, not someone who would, uh, who would rule England. Anyway, uh, in Elizabeth. In the Elizabethan era, there was this idea that all of the institutions of government were hung in balance and checked one another. And the judiciary checked this, and the legislature checked that, and the, the crown didn't try to do too much, wasn't too proactive. 
And so there's this nostalgia, this perception that somehow in England at that time, all of the institutions were hung and suspended in constitutional perfection. The English constitution is this malleable thing. It's not precise. It's not written down necessarily. Some have argued that it's written in a thousand documents and this kind of thing. But uh, at this point, uh, you know, there's this, this idea that there was a check on power or these, these institutions were suspended in, in perfect balance and this kind of thing. And then along comes James Stewart, who believes in the divine right to rule, and he's just going to do whatever he wants. And he's going to push the English system to become more, to more strongly centered on the monarchy, on the monarch himself. And so, you know, Parliament basically rebuffs him. And he has, this is James uh, Stewart we're talking about here. You know, he, he likes strapping young men. And he has a lot of uh, young Scottish men around court. And lots of rumors fly. And historians are pretty certain that uh, he uh, enjoyed the alternative lifestyle, if you want to put it that way. Uh, I'm putting, I'm, I'm dancing around just to make light of the point that uh, uh, James may have preferred the company of men more than women. He did marry, he did have heirs, but let's just say that uh, he enjoyed his Scottish boys, his young men, uh, more perhaps than his own wife. In any case, uh, Parliament was asked to raise taxes for his various campaigns in Europe and all of this sort of thing, and to make sure that he was kept in lavish, regal uh, uh, you know, status in, in the kingdom. And uh, the, the, you know, the Parliament is like, no, we're, we're not going to you know, pay for your Scottish cocks. Uh, cox, C-O-X, is an old English word for uh, tax, but it is a... Uh, homophone for the for cock the rooster right and uh, that was also uh, as it is today a metaphor for the male part so parliament basically you know uh, gives Stuart, uh, gives James the finger and so James decides he's going to raise taxes anyway and some of these were uh, you know on on every uh, jar of beer every every uh, beer flask there would be a uh, a crown shown because every time you filled up that much beer you had to pay a tax right and there were other liquids that were measured uh, according to the gill uh, gil which is a, a tax uh, on liquid volumes okay so james said i'll tell you what you won't let me raise the rate of taxation i'm just going to lower the volume right so he decided to make the amount that had been one crown of beer two crowns of beer and one Jill, two Jills, right? So Jack and Jill went up a hill to fetch a pail of water, a liquid volume, right? Jack fell down and broke his crown and Jill came tumbling after. And you have this nursery rhyme that goes around in, you know, among English speaking peoples to this day that most people cannot make any sense of. And it's a joke about raising taxes. And why do the English resist taxation so much? We have the story of Robin Hood, who stole from King, you know, from Prince John, who was then uh, Prince Regent, while his brother was off fighting the Crusades, stole from King John to give back to the taxpayers, you know, mostly the nobility, right? And uh, we have this resistance to taxation here, and everyone's complaining about James raising taxes by lowering the volumes at which uh, taxation had to be paid. There go the nursing rhyme, Jack and Jill. Uh, so, you know, we're seeing this, this significant resistance here. 
James went back and forth and back and forth with Parliament, um, and uh, one of his uh, courtiers uh, kept getting into trouble in uh, in his various wars with France and what have you, and they eventually uh, executed him. I don't want to go into the whole story here, but James and Parliament didn't get on. Um, we also have this Renaissance era that's going on in England at the time, uh, the late Renaissance by the time James comes to the throne, but the Renaissance that began with uh, Michelangelo and uh, Galileo and, and that sort of thing down in Italy, this revisiting of classical Greek thought and, uh, you know, people kind of having fun and exploring art and beauty and, and this kind of thing, uh, finally reaches England in uh, late in Elizabeth's rule and we get this Renaissance time of uh, people singing and dancing and, and playing music and they have a little bit of freedom because their church is not as stringent as the Catholic Church. And there's this uh, sort of English liberty thing going on here. And so people are, are free and they're dancing and they're having fun. And meanwhile, because uh, freedom means all kinds of things, there's a group of people who are resistant to all this nonsense and dancing and, and drinking and having fun. And these are the Puritans, because they're reading the Bible, and a funny thing happens, they're wanting a more uh, sober, purified, uh, righteous lifestyle, right? And so they're going to rise uh, as, as, you know, a major Protestant force in history thereafter, right? Uh, so James doesn't get on well with, these, with, with Parliament, uh, he's all this kind of problem, and then he dies, and his son Charles succeeds to the throne as Charles I. And Charles is, it's hard to put it any other way, Charles is a numbskull. Uh, he is uh, a guy that is so dumb that he can't even play politics well enough to keep himself alive. He is going to end up sparking a war with Parliament, the beginning of the English Civil War. They're ultimately going to defeat him, capture him, and cut off his head. And the, this is going to happen against the backdrop of a religious struggle that's going to happen. Uh, you have basically four religious groups that are going at each other at this time. Uh, they're the Catholics who are seeking to rejoin the Church of England to the Catholic Church, the church headed by the Pope in Rome. You have the Episcopalians, who are more traditionalist Anglicans who do not want change in the church. They want to keep their uh, Episcopals, their bishops, uh, and the bishop will tell the faithful what uh, they're supposed to believe, right? And, and preach through the vicars, through the priests in the various churches, what, what the, the doctrine is and what the beliefs are and that kind of thing. And the bishops will do this stuff. And then you have the Presbyterians who are saying, no, 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 no. This is going to be done by church elders, by presbyters, by councils within each church. They'll decide at the local level uh, what the church should be preaching. And then we have our Puritans. They want to take control of the Church of England to purify it to be what they want it to be, right? Uh, they want it to be more puritanical. These are people who want to get rid of Christmas and turn it into a very somber occasion, right? They don't want any dancing. They don't want anybody fooling around. They want religious purity. And that is their goal. <coughs> That's what they're seeking. They want to be as religiously pure as they possibly can. And these four groups are going to go at it in this uh, civil war. 
uh, the English Civil War is fascinating, and uh, I mentioned uh, Mike Duncan's podcast on the history of Rome. Mike Duncan has another podcast, Revolutions. It's really great. Uh, he goes through the English Civil War in great detail. So if you want to listen to that podcast, Revolutions. He has many great revolutions. His coverage of the Mexican Revolution was incredible, and I love his coverage of the French Revolution. Really in-depth, uh, brilliant, brilliantly done, brilliantly done. So Mike Duncan great uh, source there for uh, really in-depth and thoughtful information that sees, you know, the big picture as well as the events kind of on a chronological basis. And that's uh, very valuable to me because I like the big picture stuff, but I also, you know, this happened and then this happened. History is ultimately a series of dates, events, and places. Uh, But, you know, you also have the bigger tent, you know, the trends and the, and the, the mo, the, the motion and the, uh, momentum that's going in this direction and that direction, you know? So, anyway. So this is, uh, this is what's going on in, in England here. The English Civil War. The English, believing that Charles is tyrannical, rise up against their own king. And it's uh, Cavaliers and Roundheads. The people who follow the king are called the Cavaliers. And because the House of Lords wear these funny-looking round hats at the time, uh, they become known as the Roundheads. And so you're roundheads versus the cavaliers. And you have all these different religious groups vying for control of parliament and control of the church and this kind of thing. At the same time, they're kind of, uh, a lot of them are allied, at least at first, Presbyterians, Puritans, uh, and even some Episcopalians against the king, right? Whereas your Catholics generally and a lot of, and some Episcopalians are, are for the king. And then eventually the, uh, the, uh, the Presbyterians will change size. You'll have a, a whole second civil war fought on a different, an entirely different basis. Okay. And then at some point, uh, you know, Lord Fairfax isn't winning any battles. You know, there's the parliament is struggling against the King and along comes this, this young Puritan seeker named Oliver Cromwell, uh, the, uh, nephew of Thomas Cromwell, who had, uh, been, uh, one of the main, um, architects of the Reformation in England under Henry VIII. In any case, Oliver Cromwell comes along and uh, he forms a new model army that's able to defeat the king and ultimately capture him. <laughs> and uh, Oliver Cromwell ends up becoming essentially the dictator of England after a little while there. Um, and uh, for some reason, he decides to go on an uh, escapade in Ireland and go kill some Irishmen. Nobody can t- exactly say why, you know, they, they claim there was, you know, it was a massacre or whatever, but it's a chance to go fight the Catholics and, you know. Uh, so there's, this is why the English Civil War is kind of three wars in one, because you have the two versions of the English Civil War plus the war in Ireland. A couple of interesting points here, because again, I, I don't have time to go through the history. I'm just trying to get the big ideas here. Oliver Cromwell's greatest contribution to Anglo-American society is freedom of conscience. Because he was a seeker, he was a Puritan, but he had an open mind. He was pursuing religious thought. And when I say he was open-minded, I, I don't mean very open-minded. Uh, you know, this is a guy who would wa- walk around pacing back and forth in Parliament, pounding his fist into his hand about there's a right way to do things and a wrong way to do things. Well, uh, Oliver Cromwell established freedom of conscience. And this would survive even after the English Civil War was over and the Stuarts were restored under Charles II. Uh, this idea that you didn't, religion would no longer be compulsory. You didn't have to attend the Church of England. You didn't have to listen to what the bishops and vicars were saying, uh, that you could practice your religion as you believed. 
fit. And after that, of course, the Presbyterians, the, the followers of John Knox, would go their way. The Wesleyans, the followers of Wesley, the Methodists, the Methodist Church would go their way. And Baptists and other movements would form as well down the road. And this opens the door for all these religious movements. Oliver Cromwell also made a second great contribution in that he brought the Jews back into England. That's why most English Jews have Dutch or German sounding names because the English had been had thrown out the Jews back in, uh, you know, the Duke of Normandy, William the Conqueror, had brought a lot of Jews in, but uh, Edward had thrown them out, and so now uh, Jews were invited back in, and so you know, large Jewish communities move into England, and that's very good for the English economy thereafter. Uh, third thing, and this is really really important because this is going to foreshadow everything that's going to happen in England for the next two centuries. I mean, it's, it's incredible, this moment in history. And I, God, if I could go back and talk to anyone to, to have sat down with John Lambert just for an hour and discuss his plan of government would have been so incredible. Uh, and I'm going to talk about the plan of government again when I talk about early American history. So take a note, keep it in the back of your head, okay? Back with John Lambert, the plan of government, in just a moment. I don't know if I sound like the deep and pensive sort uh, in these podcasts, but I am actually something of a poet, and I do enjoy writing poetry. I recently published a book of poetry, Dark Recesses of the Mind. In Dark Recesses of the Mind, I write a lot about uh, depression, about feelings, about uh, childhood trauma, and the feelings that we're left with during our lives. I also uh, play a little bit with Japanese poetic styles and uh, some other poetic forms. And, uh, of course, you know, I'm fond of Shakespearean poetry and, and various uh, classical poets and what have you, uh, Persian poets like Rumi and so on and so forth. So I, I've written a lot of interesting poetry uh, that is uh, unique. If you're interested in poetry, please check out my book, Dark Recesses of the Mind. Uh, just Google the title and you'll be able to find someplace that you're able to buy it. Dark Recesses of the Mind by Isaac Kite. So it, it doesn't look like I'm necessarily going to get to the Enlightenment in this episode, so that's going to have to kick off the next episode, uh, which is fine. Uh, but I have to get through one more thing, because John Lambert's plan of government, which I'm going to talk about more in the future, as I've mentioned, so take note, is a really incredible moment in English history. And uh, again, the counterfactuals. I mean, what if the plan of government had actually worked? You just, you just imagine. So John Lambert uh, is working to try, as you know, Cromwell's now kind of the Lord Protector, he's, he's ruling England, and they've decided they're going to create a new structure of government. And so John Lambert writes this plan of government, and under it there is the Lord Protector, which of course is Oliver Cromwell's position, and that, that one he's kind of bowing to necessity, right? Cromwell is in charge, he's going to continue to rule, so we're just going to have to put him into the government. And there's a, a, a House of Councillors an upper house that uh, are appointed for life and they are to advise the uh, to serve as a council of advisors to the uh, Lord Protector right and his government and then you have the House of Commons and the House of Commons is going to be elected by the the gentry right? not everyone can vote at this point but okay those who can vote uh, they're going to be allowed to vote every three years to elect their members of Parliament and uh, this government is incredibly forward-thinking. If, if, if the Lord Protector had become something of a figurehead position similar to the way the monarchy would become uh, under Queen Victoria, right, the, the dignified that doesn't get involved in politics, 
if the House of Counselors had just kind of butted out and, and just become a ceremonial uh, body, something like the House of Lords are today, England was just a hair's breadth from a parliamentary system right then and there. And of course, as soon as this government came uh, into office, Parliament immediately started to take charge and lead and, and try to make decisions. They wanted to come up with a religious settlement and deal with politics and taxes. And, and they, they were inserting themselves into so many issues that ultimately Oliver Cromwell didn't want to deal with it and he got rid of them. You know, he, he dissolved Parliament. And so the plan of government fell apart. But you just, I, this, is, this is a great moment. What spurred John Lambert to come up with this system and why did this system appeal to the English people, right? Over in France, they have a kind of parliament, the church, the nobles, and the third estate, which represents the common people, who are always outvoted, or I should say the, the gentry, right? The landed, uh, the landed commoners, people who have land or money, a little bit, you know, the merchant class, but we're not talking about like average common everyday people. We're talking about those who are allowed to vote, you know, the, those who have a little bit of money, a little bit of wealth, but are not noble. They don't have a, have a title of nobility. In any case, this is just this incredible moment where we see the English people putting forward their ideal of government, right? And it's not a divine right to rule king. And so we're starting to get an idea here, a sense of English concepts of liberty. Well, uh, ultimately things get chaotic. Oliver Cromwell dies. His son is not the Cromwell that his father was. Things devolve into chaos, and ultimately uh, the ruling body, the ruling class, ultimately invites Charles II back to the throne, the son of Charles I. And uh, he rules in, in an era that's called the Restoration. And he has a lot of the ringleaders of the, of the Civil War uh, executed and their heads uh, posted on spikes outside the Tower of London and, you know, reestablishes Stuart monarchy. And it's very clear that it's not his father's Stuart monarchy or his grandfather's Stuart mon monarchy. Uh, it's pretty clear that this is, um, uh, this is a, a slightly toned down monarchy. And he fights back and forth with Parliament politically, but not militarily. This is also a time of, of libertine behavior. Uh, after all this religious fighting and all of this, uh, people kind of settle into, let's just do whatever. You know, who, who cares? Uh, we're just, we're just going to party. It's just going to be a fun thing. Uh, sexual mores are relaxed, kind of like they were in the, in the uh, Renaissance. And we're, we're seeing this back and forth between more uh, politically conservative, socially conservative behavior and more politically liberal and socially libertine behavior. It's kind of an interesting cycle that we start to see. People becoming more conservative, more liberal, more conservative. Something I'll, I'll talk about elsewhere. Uh, but, you know, we, we start to see this cycle in Anglo-American society right here. And it, it happens elsewhere as well. But, you know, just, just right here, we're, we're seeing it. Uh, Charles dies. His brother James comes to the throne. And James is thought to be a closet Catholic. And everyone's like, yeah, we don't want a Catholic on the throne. But we'll just wait. He'll die. He doesn't have an heir. He only has a daughter, Mary Stuart. No big deal, right? And then he has a son. His son will later become known as Bonnie Prince Charlie, uh, very popular among the Scots. Uh, and all hell breaks loose. James tries to disarm the English public, and there ends up being this sort of 
minor rebellion, what they call the Glorious Revolution, and he's forced to flee. And in 1689, they invite William of Orange, a, uh, uh, the, Orange the House of Orange is a Dutch uh, parliamentary uh, house or a ruling house. The, the De Vietes and the Oranges are, are the people who rule the Netherlands at the time, kind of back and forth, but they're from Holland. And William is a relative of the royal family, but he's also a Protestant. He's from the Dutch, uh, Protest the Dutch are a Protestant country. So William of Orange comes over to, to rule. He marries uh, Mary, and so William and Mary. And if you go to Virginia, you can see the College of William and Mary, which is named after them, uh, because, of course, we have colonies uh, at the time. So uh, he comes to the throne. And at this point, the English put a series of stipulations on his rule called the Bill of Rights, which Parliament later passes and enacts as the Bill of Rights. And among these are... Uh, the right to bear arms, basic freedom of expression, basic freedom, uh, you know, civil liberties, protection from legal persecution, things of that nature. But again, none of these ideas are pitched as, as we're doing something new. These are sold as ancient English liberties. So there's this idea here. Now, whether those liberties are ancient or not, but there's an idea here among these English men who are ruling the country at the time, leading the country, that there are these ancient rights to which they are entitled and that the king must grant them these rights. That's really interesting stuff. Why did the English believe this? Where did this come from? And now you can see, kind of as I've been going back through you know, Henry II and his common law, through uh, James, uh, John and the founding of Parliament, but more importantly, uh, the rise of Parliament, the suspension of, of the English Constitution, all the troubles between James and all of this lead to this moment where we now codify that Englishmen have rights, right? And things are going to change in, in England a little bit after that. Uh, after William's death, their, their daughter Anne rules for a time, and eventually George Hanover, the Elector of Hanover, is brought over. And uh, this is the, the beginning of George I, George II, and the infamous George III, We'll speak a lot about uh, when I talk about American history, early American history. Uh, they'll come to power uh, in time. But, uh, you know, this is a moment where it's very distinctly no longer just the king who rules. And by the time we get to George, we have this idea of the king in parliament, uh, that the king and parliament rule together. And eventually, by the time George III gets into trouble with these meddlesome, troublesome, rebellious American colonists... Uh, Parliament is basically going to sock him in the face and uh, establish, you know, parliamentary government uh, that will take some time to develop after that. But by the middle of the 19th century, uh, John Lambert's plan of government essentially will have come full circle and, and come to full fruition. And Parliament, the House of Commons in particular, the lower House of Parliament, will be running Britain as an increasingly democratic body, as a body for whom increasing numbers of people have the right to vote, kind of like in America. Uh, you know, eventually common, more increasingly poorer and more common people are allowed to vote, and then eventually industrial workers, and then women, and, you know, so on and so forth. Eventually we get universal suffrage, okay? But uh, at this point, you know, Parliament is still made up largely of the elite uh, for those two centuries, landed gentry and what, what, what. Uh, so... Is there, but we, we've established here again Western civilization, the Western European branch of Western civilization, the Protestant branch of Western European civilization, uh, of Western civilization, and now this Anglo American tradition. 
And again, by the time we get to the Glorious Revolution, we have thoroughly established this idea of ancient English liberties. And if you know your history, this 1688-1689, there are already colonies in America. There's already the Massachusetts colony, the Connecticut colony, Rhode Island, right? New Hampshire, okay? Virginia, North Carolina, all these, these places already exist. And so people over there are watching what's going on in England with great interest, and they're paying attention. And they also believe that they have ancient English rights. They don't want anybody to go trampling on. Okay? Don't tread on me. So I come back in the next episode for part three of this. I'm going to delve into uh, the 18th century and the development of English republicanism and lead right up to the ideas that led to the American Revolution before I jump into uh, the real birth of American liberty uh, in in that regard. But I hope you're getting a fair sense of where this comes from in terms of civilization, civilizationally, where it comes from historically, and how we got to this point. You know, England breaking off its church from the the crown, but remaining a church, you know, keeping an institution. Eventually, freedom of conscience, so on and so forth. So religious freedom. Uh, Eventually, the right to bear arms and freedom of speech, essentially, and expression, freedom of conscience are established and codified in the law and the right to certain civil liberties, common law, you know, this idea that, uh, you know, the judge is making precedence over time, but also that, uh, you know, the law has to be acceptable to the people, right? The people have to think it's just, not just the king. These are, these are unique ideas. And so this is where uh, this stuff is born. Uh, And Cook is a really important part of Uh, early American thinking. And so I'll get into some of the Enlightenment philosophers and, again, the birth of of English republicanism and uh, some early concepts of democratic republicanism uh, before uh, delving into American history. As always, uh, everyone has value. Everyone was made in the image of their creator. And you have value too, whether you know it or not.